This program is brought to you by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Green News Report from Brad Blog, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Jimmy Dore Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. The corporate media love to play up the misconception that Wisconsin state workers have it easy and therefore deserve to get their benefits cut and their unions crushed. Well, meet two state workers and listen to their stories and then please reconsider that misconception if you would. Latanza Joshua works as a resident care technician at the Southern Wisconsin Center in Union Grove for people with mental disabilities. I help take care of their daily needs, says Latanza, who's worked there for 10 years now and makes $15 an hour. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck, she tells me, and if the cuts go through, I'd be basically working to get to work. Brian Cappings, 32, is a corrections officer at the Wapon Correctional Institution. He's worked there for 10 years now. His starting pay was $11 an hour. Governor Walker's already threatened to call out the National Guard to do the work of correctional officers, which Brian thinks is a really bad idea, since they're not trained for this duty. They could be spat on, he says. They could get feces and urine thrown at them. Brian says he knows several corrections officers who voted for Walker but now regret it. The ones I talked to apologized, he says. They didn't realize how radical this guy was going to be. Few people in Wisconsin did. But think about Latanza and Brian the next time someone dumps on state workers. Joining me is Harold Schaefberger. He's the president of the International Association of Firefighters. And I want to talk to you about the national scope here. What do you think? Do you think that the momentum here for this hard right-wing ideology is kind of stopped cold in its tracks, given what you're seeing out of the governors, whether it's Daniels in Indiana, Kasich in Ohio, even Chris Christie said, oh, no, 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 collective bargaining, it's totally okay. Well, let, let's start with John. First, this is truly a organized, coordinated effort all across this country to try to silence workers' voices and to try to deny them their basic rights. Many of those rights, as in Wisconsin, that they've enjoyed for over 50 years. If you take a look at really what's going on, this is about governors promoting collective bargaining uh, withdrawal or undermining collective bargaining rights in at least eight states. Nebraska, Iowa, Oklahoma, Michigan, of course, Wisconsin, Ohio. I mean, if you you layer that on top of 12 states, right to work laws now being considered. New Hampshire just passing it in their House of Representatives, a bill to undermine and gut workers' rights and the ability for unions to represent workers. If you take a look at paycheck deception laws that they call protection laws to silence workers in the political arena, 15 states. If you look at the laws that were passed in Alabama to deny workers the ability to simply deduct dues from their 
paycheck so that they could be members of their unions that's now in Tennessee, moving into Oklahoma, several other states. This is a coordinated attack to try to assault and gut America's labor movement, and they're using the old tactics of divide and conquer. Right. Whether they're trying to divide the private sector workers from public sector workers, or as in Wisconsin, they thought they would divide us by trying to give firefighters, cops, and troopers a little something, take it away from everybody else, hoping that we would battle amongst ourselves while they just stand on the sidelines. And that's not working. We are united in Wisconsin. And it's, you know, it's a credit to the firefighters who say, hey, look, even though this didn't affect me, I'm still going to fight uh, for my fellow worker. So now the real critical question, if you ask me, is did this work against the Republicans? So they tried this, as you said, and they wanted to spread it to other states. We've been showing it all week, all their attempts to try to spread it to other states. But now it looks like they're in a little bit of a retreat. Did they screw up here? Was this a, a tactical mistake? Did they lose? Well, it does look like that we have some governors that are taking another look at this strategy. Obviously, you mentioned Indiana, and now it appears that Right to Work that was moving through that legislature has been withdrawn. You're taking a look at Michigan, where the governor there looks like he is slowing down the effort to uh, undermine their collective bargaining law. I believe it's fair to say, taking the position, let's see how Wisconsin works out. So I think you're seeing a pause, but I do not under underestimate uh, the, uh, the significance of these attacks. I don't underestimate um, uh, Governor Walker's resolve. Obviously, that tape simply shows that he is reveling in this, and he thinks that he is uh, simply going to not bend or break. And I can tell you this, this is what's really sad. The public needs to understand. The employees in Wisconsin have been trying to meet with the governor. He refuses to meet with them. They've made it clear that they understand that they have to pay more toward their pension, more toward their health care. But this isn't about the budget. This is just old-fashioned union busting right now, and he sees this as an opportunity to be ground zero to start undermining and dismantling America's labor movement. And we are taking a stand, and we are fighting back. Oh, yeah, oh, my darling, stand by me. No matter where you go in life, you gon' need somebody to stand by you. No matter how much money you got, all the friends you got, you gon' need somebody. And finally, in Wisconsin, where public employees are fighting an attempt by newly elected Republican Governor Scott Walker to strip them of their collective bargaining rights, there is a Green News connection. The Billionaire Koch brothers. The Billionaire Koch brothers are corporate titans who have been using their vast wealth to fund right-wing causes. Among the biggest funders of the Republicans, the Tea Party and AstroTurf anti-environmental groups, according to Mother Jones, the Koch brothers were the biggest funders of Governor Scott Walker's campaign. Through maximum direct cash contributions to his campaign and millions in funding advertising from outside groups. The Kochs own multiple high-polluting industries in the state and 
and Governor Walker's proposals are pushing renewable energy companies out of Wisconsin. So Coke Industries has a huge stake. They give thousands and thousands of dollars to the governor. He gets elected and does their bidding. Who could have ever foreseen it? Wisconsin's budget. Governor Scott Walker has finally put his proposals on the table. He is, in addition to stripping teachers and public workers of most of their collective bargaining rights, cutting $800 million from the Wisconsin public schools budget over the next two years, as well as restricting local municipalities the ability to raise property taxes to make up for any shortfalls. In essence, he has put public sector unions on notice, and particularly teachers that the gravy train is over. <laughs> Even if the gravy is actually lunchroom cafeteria grade gravy-like rehydrated slurry chips. We can no longer live in a society where the public employees are the haves and the taxpayers who foot the bills are the have-nots. In these tough economic times, sure. we've all got to be in it together. We all are in it together. All of us have to sacrifice. Teachers, Teacher's assistants, <laughs> student teachers, <laughs> retired teachers, school janitors, everybody has to sacrifice. Why teachers? Well, as Republicans and their kin in the media know, you gots to follow the money. The average teacher's salary is much greater than the average private Absolutely. sector salary. Salary, $51,000 in Wisconsin. Benefits, $38,000 per year. That comes to a whopping 89000 bucks. More than their private sector counterparts. We're talking a $90,000, nine months worth of work, uh, all in package. Boy, it sounds pretty darn good to the hey, 14 million people out of work. <laughs> you know what? That does sound great to someone without a job. <laughs> And did you know, you're not even going to believe this, some of these fat cat public school kids are getting a hot breakfast free every morning. I bet starving people would like a piece of that action, don't you think? These folks just want teachers to give back because they believe that $50,000 a year in salary plus medical and dental benefits are incredibly generous, bordering on avarice. And I imagine these same people will feel the same way about couples earning more than $250,000 a year being asked to allow the Bush tax cuts to expire so that they would have to pay a slightly higher federal income tax rate. Is the $250,000 income level really rich in America? How can anybody claim if you make $250,000 that you're a millionaire? $250,000 is not rich for a family of four sending kids to college. It actually is close to poverty. People want to think that these are millionaires sitting in leather chairs lighting their cigars with $100 bills. That's not what we're talking about. No, that is not. <laughs> not when it comes to the Bush tax cuts. They're not big shot teachers with their desks. 
and seemingly endless supply of multicolored construction papers. Oh, and their number two pencils. I guess number three pencils aren't good enough for your majesty. And don't even try. Don't even try. And compare teachers to Wall Street. No contest. Teachers just don't get paid nearly as much as people on Wall Street do. That's not nor restore, to do. Nor, with all due respect to teachers, do they do they work as much? They have the summers off. The hedge fund manager well, isn't paid by the state, isn't paid by the taxpayer, but the teachers are. See the difference? <laughs> Regardless of the greed-based, almost slightly sociopathic job bankers did wrecking our economy, those people were there every single day, 12 months a year. Not that nine-month bull And we, the taxpayers, have a right to cut teacher salaries and benefits. They work for us. Bankers are not suckling from the taxpayers' teat. Except, of course, for the billions of gallons of taxpayer bailout teat milk. they supped on so voraciously. <laughs> hey, I wonder how those same people who would have the government limit teacher pay and benefits would feel about the government limiting CEO pay at bailed out with taxpayer money firms. You don't want to discourage everyone. If you kept everybody's salary, you, you're, especially in Wall Street, you'll look at a huge talent exodus. I just don't like the whole concept, Elizabeth, of, of the government putting a salary, you know, marker on anything. The shareholders, meaning the taxpayers, want to get their money's worth. They better damn well pay the CEOs what a good CEO demands. It's not a good way of attracting talent in the future. And they're going to need what? all the talent they can get. Absolutely. We have got to pay those bailed out firm CEOs top dollar. Otherwise, those companies could wind up being run by a couple of jackasses who f things up so royally, <laughs> it torpedoes the entire global economy. <laughs> would you want that to happen? I don't think you would. Now to be fair, let's be fair. We are nothing if not fair, to be fair. We could not have cut those Wall Street CEOs' pay even if we wanted to. They had contracts. There are bonuses that were promised to people when these guys came in. These are contractual obligations. The contracts are legal contracts. And it wasn't as if these uh, bonuses were unknown or sprung at the last minute. Let's face it, anybody that gets a bonus, that money is spent long before that check comes in the mail, right? <laughs> these poor people paying off mortgages, paying off debt, the odds that these people have these bonuses are slim to none right now. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> our financial system is built on faith. Our word is our bond. <laughs> and even if we could get the Wall Street bonus money back, what do you want the Wall Street workers to do, untake those two weeks on a yacht in St. Bart's? <laughs> Unre-renovate your kitchen? <laughs> By the way, what about rescinding contractual obligations to teachers? Yes, you, exact same person who says you can't get it back from Wall Street. You knew this was happening. They all knew this was going to come to a head. And I think it is showing a poor example to our kids that these people are out there fighting fighting for things that they, quite frankly, don't deserve. They, too, need to make concessions. She's absolutely right. And I say this. 
When will America's teachers follow the lead of Wall Street and start making some sacrifices for the children? How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. This is part of what's used as a tool to divide one segment of the American public from another, divide the people who are in the private sector from the people who are in the public sector. It's one of the things that makes me so mad and sad about this whole debate. We are on a race to the bottom, you know, in terms of American workers' salaries and benefits, folks. And this is one group of Americans you know, trying to grab the feet of another group of Americans who are just by the skin of their teeth maybe managing to stay in the middle class so that you can all slide downhill together. It's understandable, too, because the way it's supposed to work theoretically is that the public workers are supposed to be making less than the private workers. In general, the old trade-off was you could go into the private sector where you would probably have a bigger paycheck month to month and you would stand a chance to make a ton of money. You could become rich in the private sector. But, of course, it was an uncertain sort of gamble as well. You could be fired at any time. There's no pensions and no guarantees of health care, any of those things. And some people go into that kind of a life and others choose a more safe and secure public job. And in the public jobs, you give up things normally. You give up the good monthly salary compared to what you might make in the private sector. It's generally understood you'll make less on a month-to-month basis. You also give up any chance of becoming rich. Even the public sector jobs where people tend to make a lot of money, you're unlikely to become rich unless the president is deliberately picking you for a job. Or the, you know, the governor is specifically saying, I want Bob for this job. Okay, you might get a job where you can get rich, but those people are few and far between. What you're really getting when you make the decision to take a public job in the old, you know, in the old trade-off analogy that people used to use is you're, you're getting a pension. You're going to be harder to fire. You're getting health care, maybe. You get the benefits on the other end. You can retire earlier, maybe, than a person in the private sector if the person in the private sector didn't become rich. So the trade-off has always been there. The problem is is that while the public sector has their you know, benefits and salary increases built into the system, you know, it's tied to the cost of living and everything, um, the people in the private sector have gotten their rear ends handed to them for the last 30 years. They've seen no gain in income as a you know generation, as a group in, in 30 years. We've had women come into the workforce, you know, so that a lot of families have two people in the workforce instead of one now, and yet the household income's not going up. So what you've seen over the last three decades or so is the income of private sector workers going down, and at some point passing the income of the public sector workers going in the other direction. Now that inspires envy and anger these people say i'm paying for these people out of my pocketbook but they're making more than i am i don't have any health care that my 
employer puts in. I don't have any pension. I can be fired at any time. It begins to look like those people got a sweetheart deal. They got guaranteed everything. They took the safe and secure route and they make more money every month. This is being used by our politicians to divide us. There was a piece by uber liberal uh, Robert Reich, former Clinton administration official, where he wrote on his blog about how the Republicans are using this as a strategy to divide Americans, to keep their eyes off what's really happening to them. You know how, the, according to Robert Reich, the whole government's being stolen by the super rich. And in order to keep people from noticing that, they, they kind of point fingers at each other. So you start looking at your countryman, who's actually rather near your income level, rather than looking at the guy who's making 300 times what you are. Um, take it for what it's worth. It's obviously the liberal position. But here's a quote from his blog. Quote, the Republican strategy is to split the vast middle and working class, pitting unionized workers against non-unionized, public sector workers against non-public, older workers within sight of Medicare and Social Security against younger workers who don't believe these programs will be there for them, and the poor against the working middle class, end quote. Well, I, you know, I could see, if you wanted to look at it that way, that you could make a case that it is almost like a strategy. I talk to these people who call themselves free traders all the time, who, when I bring up the idea of American wages, look at me as though I don't understand that American wages going up would mean, you know, inflation and stuff like that and higher costs at the, you know, local store and, you know, less competitiveness with foreign nations. In other words, there are a lot of people that will try to make the argument to you that wages going up for average Americans is a bad thing. These are the same people that will look at wages going up in the public sector and feel like that's a bad thing, too. The only difference is, whereas it's hard to make an argument to the American people that wages going up in the private sector is a bad thing, you have a lot of things you could point to to make your argument with wages going up in the public sector. And one is what it's doing to all the budgets. But another has to do with the very strange role of public employee unions. This is and this is something that's not widely thought about or discussed, but public employee unions are very different animals from private employee unions. Not just that, they haven't been around as long as a lot of people think. When you listen to the rhetoric, for example, these people in Wisconsin will start chanting things and and trying to tie themselves to what you might call the classical labor movement, the one from the late 1800s, the early 1900s, the movement of private labor unions to involve themselves in struggles between corporate management and workers in ways that we should all be thankful they did. I mean, you like your five-day work week? You like your eight-hour day? You like your, you know, anti-child labor laws? You like your health and safety laws in your workplace? These are all things we have unions to thank for. But those animals are not the same animals that the public employee unions are. In fact, the public employee unions didn't come around until much later, the late 1950s. In fact, at the federal level, public employee unions weren't allowed until John F. Kennedy's administration, 1962, that was enacted. So these unions weren't around in the old days between labor and management. And their purpose is fundamentally different because when you think of the relationship between a private sector union and a corporation, these are two separate entities. These are non-public entities, two private entities dealing with each other, the union and the corporation. In the public 
example we have here, when you talk about a public employee union, that is a group of public officials, and they are aligning themselves against management. Well, who's management in this situation? The public. And again, if it wasn't already weird enough, that also includes those same people who are part of the public employee unions. So if you have a teacher who belongs to a union that's upset about the contract and is willing to go on strike to see that they get a better deal, and that teacher goes on strike, the schools are getting worse, which hurts that teacher who has kids in those schools too. I mean, it becomes very a very weird government sort of feedback loop when you talk about public employees gaining a ton of clout in the government to go lobby the government to give more tax dollars to them. One of the people on our discussion board found a great letter from perhaps the most labor-friendly president in American history, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to a labor leader explaining why he didn't think public employee unions were right. And it's for basically the same reason, that it's a strange entity in a public system, and it creates a strange feedback loop, and it creates the conditions where you see you know, President Barack Obama going and getting involved in this Wisconsin situation because he knows that he needs the support of these public employee unions to win elections because they're that powerful. And what do they want? More tax dollars and more concessions from the public. Why do they want it? Because that's what unions fight for. But it's one thing when they're fighting for a bunch of clothing makers who work for a private company. It's another thing when they're fighting for teachers who work for us. In a perfect world, I think we would step back and look at the concept of public employee unions and say, ooh, that's not the best way to handle that at all. And yet I'm a supporter of private unions. Not just that, but think about all the normal things that help balance out the relationship between private unions and corporations. I mean, the corporation, for example, has a real interest in keeping costs down. It's their money. It's their shareholders' money. If they can't keep costs low, they lose. And if they go beyond a certain floor and profitability stays non-existent for too long, they're out of business. It provides a natural balancing mechanism for the demands of the workers for more pay and benefits. You don't have that in the taxpayer system, in the public system. When the public unions are going to legislators and asking for money, those legislators do not have the same, you know, drop-dead, fail-safe need to maintain profitability. A lot easier to spend taxpayer dollars than it is to spend, you know, the dollars of a corporation on the demands of a labor union. Not just that, if you look at the way historically we've gotten into a ton of problems over time and the reason so many of these state budgets are in, you know, the terrible, terrible red territory is because of shady shenanigans done when these deals were originally conceived of, sometimes generations ago. I mean, let me give, I can't speak with any intelligence to what's going on in a number of these other states because often the particulars are different state to state. I can tell you about the situation here in Oregon. Oregon's in a very similar situation to Wisconsin and a lot of other states. And part of the reason why is because our public employee costs are completely out of control. But they're completely out of control for completely understandable reasons. For the most part, you could blame it on poor leadership, either when the original deal was made or in the maintenance of the stipulations of the deal. Let me explain what I mean. In the 1970s and 1980s here in Oregon, um, there were some lean budgetary years. And so the political leaders would get together with the leaders of these public employee unions, and they would negotiate deals to try to spare the budget, right? We don't have a lot of money now, uh, so I can't give you the salary increase you want. What can we do to make it fair to you so that you'll agree to this deal and, and help us out now? And there were always mechanisms you could choose. One of the best mechanisms was to make it up to the workers on the other side. 
say, okay, you can't have your pay raise this year, but we'll sweeten your retirement plan so that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, you'll have a better retirement plan. And that's the give and take so we can have a deal now. And I, the politician, can go get voted to an even higher elected office by telling my constituents that I saved them in the budget battle, that the teachers won't, you know, bust the budget and they won't go on strike and we have a deal and it's all wonderful and now that guy's dead. And a bunch of people who weren't even voting when that deal was made are now going to have to foot the bill for a deal that may have been a terrible deal, but nobody finds that out until those teachers that were, you know, in the prime of their career when the deal was made, retire. What's more, sometimes the deal was a good deal at the time, and these legislators who were creating, you know, these pension payoffs for the public employee union set aside pension funds and stuff so that the money would be there. But along the way, some other politician raided that fund or put it in the stock market and lost it. I mean, there's all kinds of different stories state to state about the poor management our leaders did of these you know, funds over time. It's tempting to ask ourselves why the public employee should be forced to bear the burden of the bad leadership, you know, that got us to this point. And it's also fair, I think, to say if I was a public employee and I was retired now and living on the pension that I planned for based on the financial deal that I was working under, it would be fair to say what would happen in the private sector if one side unilaterally tried to get rid of a deal like this. Somebody would go to jail. But in the public sector, you can essentially get me to bargain away some salary for something on the other end and then come to me later and say, well, this deal's not working anymore. We're taking away the other end from you, too. We're taking away what we gave you so you would give up the salary increase at the time because now we can't do this part either. That's getting screwed at both ends. You don't get your salary increase earlier on and you don't get your benefit that you gave up for that. I think you'd be fair as a state worker to say, okay, if you're abrogating the deal, I want the money back that I would have gotten had I gotten the pay increases at all those meetings. Might have to hand every state worker $300,000 or something and say, okay, here's the money, but now you don't get your benefits. I mean, that would be the fair thing, wouldn't it? But you don't hear people talking about that. You're guys like Rush Limbaugh calling public workers parasites. And everywhere, I see the phrase sucking at the public teat everywhere, like our police officers and our teachers and our fire personnel are doing that. I just get sad thinking about how here we are cutting each other down you know, for what we're making. And nobody's getting rich. We're all falling into the, you know, income abyss together, basically. And all we can do is, you know, savage our countrymen for trying to, you know, keep some semblance of the middle class. You know who's more progressive than uh, President Obama? Shep Smith, a Fox News anchor. By a mile. <laughs> Look, now this is going to overstate Shep's importance, but he, oh, it's definitely going to overstate it given what I'm about to tell you. But Shep is a little like our Walter Cronkite. Now, oh, calm down, calm down, calm down. I don't mean in his gravitas. I don't mean in his importance. I don't mean as a... As a you know, journalists, his credibility, etc. This is what I mean. 
our presidents in the past knew that they were in trouble when they lost Cronkite, right? And uh, with Shep, it's a little similar because, look, when he turns, I'm not saying he's a real progressive. I'm not I don't know his politics, right? But there comes a point when Shep goes, okay, no, I can't do it. I'm on Fox News, but I can't do it. No, this people are, we left people to die here during Hurricane Katrina. When he said that, public opinion, and it wasn't just based on Shep. He's kind of a barometer. It's not that he's pushing the public opinion. It's just he's right in terms of when the public goes, I can't take it anymore. And that's what happened during Hurricane Katrina. That's what happened in the 9-11 responders bill. And now that's what's happening in Wisconsin. So let's listen to Shep Smith on Fox News about Wisconsin. Clip 10. And the governor says, you know what, I don't want unions to be able to take dollars out of union members' pockets and contribute it to the Democrats. And the Democrats are saying we insist on having this right if that's what we want to do for our unions because they're essential in order to uh, support Democrats' campaigns. Have you looked at the list of the top ten donors to political campaigns in America, the top ten highest? Yes. Seven, of, seven of those ten donate to Republicans. Correct. The other three that remain of those top ten... Unions. They all donate to Democrats and they're all unions. Right. Bust the unions, it's over. Yeah, so you just told me the whole deal, buddy. That's the whole thing. That's the and whole this deal. started when? Started with the Koch brothers, right? Yep. It's Koch brothers uh, were organizing in the state. I'm not taking a side on this. I'm telling you what's going on. <laughs> I'm glad you said because that's exactly the story. I'm not taking but a side. People, no, the facts, let me tell but you. People don't want to hear the no, facts. No, exactly. And so just by telling the facts, you're, you're angering a lot well, of okay, people. Okay, let them get all angry. Right, facts right. are troublesome creatures from time to time. The Koch brothers, among others, were organizing to try to bust labor. It's what big business wants to do, bust labor. This isn't a new concept. So they started getting organized. They gave a bunch of money to the, to the right. governor's campaign. The governor's campaign is over. Now... Away we go. We're going to try to bust this union up, and that's and that's what they're doing. If, if you're against the unions, you, you're you're all for the governor. If you're for the union, um, it, it's this is political. Nailed it. That's exactly what it is. And you notice what Juan Williams is saying. He's like, "Look, man, you're going to piss off that Fox News audience by telling them the truth. So be careful what you're doing." But she's like, "No, I'm going to do it anyway." And of course, he's 100 percent right in this case. And, you know, I think that, uh, again, I think you'll be a barometer to some degree. I think that a lot of the country uh, is going to look at this and go, this isn't what we signed up for, attacking the middle class, attacking the average worker, pretending that the deficit's all their fault. It's not their fault. And, you know, some might agree with cutting spending on uh, public unions, et cetera. And, look, it's a worthy discussion. I'm not the kind of guy who says, no, under no circumstances can we ever cut spending, not even close. I'm a deficit hog. It, these are discussions that need to be had and negotiated. But when you strip somebody of their right to be able to, you know, represent their own side, and you do it in this way, in this authoritarian way, without any discussion or negotiation, people get uncomfortable with it. And, and they get it. They, it's political. It's to bust the unions so the Republicans can have a bigger advantage. Good job for on, Je on Shep's part to call it out. And that is exactly the reality here. And I look partly based on that USA Today Gallup poll, where it was nearly a two to one margin, people saying unions need to have the right to collectively bargain. Uh, and partly on my instincts, I, I think Walker is on the wrong side of this politically. And I think it's going to do him damage. And I think it's going to do a lot of other Republicans damage if they continue that way. What's the point if you hate, I'm careful of, careful of. I hope you
you enjoy this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Republicans and corporatists have always hated unions. They hated them in FDR's day, and they hate them today. They hate them because unions stand in the way of gross exploitation and profit maximization. Hey, if there are no unions around and no government regulation, employers can treat their workers as shabbily as they want and pay them as poorly as they want, and we'd be back to the grapes of wrath. That was paradise for employers, and they want a return ticket. So I wasn't altogether surprised yesterday when I heard South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint proclaim, I really don't think that collective bargaining has any place in representative government. It's kind of nice to get it all out in the open, I suppose, because this is what we're up against. Now, to give you an idea just how off-base the demented one is, let me quote from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was passed by the UN in December of 1948 in response to the barbarous acts of the Nazis, which included outlawing unions. Article 23, Section 4 reads as follows, Everyone has the right to form and to join trade unions for the protection of his interests. Pretty simple, isn't it? Union rights are human rights. It says so, right there in the most important human rights document on the books, which DeMint, I guess, has never read. So let's talk about Scott Walker. He got a phone call uh, from friend a guy, of the show. friend of the show, pretending sure. to be uh, David Koch, the billionaire uh, guy who hates workers. <laughs> um, so he. Th- so let's just play. Uh, I'm gonna play some, and then we'll just talk about it. Right here is. I love people that hate what they exploit. There's just nothing more spiritual so than that. one-two yes. punch. Yeah. yeah, the workers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Mark, but Scott Walker really. He really loves the state employees. He really does. He mm. said that, and I don't have that clip, but he did say that. Okay, here we go. Each day we're going to ratchet up a little bit. The Senate Majority Leader had a great plan. He, he told him out this morning. Uh, he told the Senate Democrats about, and he's going to announce it later today, and that is the Senate Organization Committee is going to meet um, and pass a rule that says if you don't show up uh, for two consecutive days on a session day in the state Senate, the um, the uh, Senate 
chief clerk, it's a little procedural thing here, but can actually have your payroll stop from being automatically deducted into your checking account. And instead, you still get a check, but the check has to be personally picked up, and he's instructing them, uh, which we just loved, to lock them in their desk on the floor of the state senate. Okay, so that's him talking about a little plan to uh, the set the state senators who have left Wisconsin and have gone to Illinois to to prevent the Senate from having a quorum so they can bust the unions and uh, make it illegal for them to have collective bargaining anymore. So his his trick is we're going to stop them from getting their paychecks directly deposited into their accounts and we're going to lock them in their desks on the Senate floor. Oh my God, it's great! And this is a guy pretending to be Coke. This saying is, this and Scott Walker doesn't know. No, no, the, Scott Walker just said that. Right, right, but but. He thinks he's talking to David. He Coke. thinks he's he talking thinks to he's David talking Coke to and, de- and thinks that this is a non-public yes phone conversation. Thinks this is a we should also say that this is from buffalobeast.com, just so we properly credit the guy who did this. Who was buffalobeast.com? Very good. Yes. Who I saw the guy interviewed. He's not a very good interview. Yeah, I read that. Kind of, I, I kind of got annoyed at the guy when he was being interviewed <laughs> yesterday. I was like, oh, was more one-word answers, jackass. Yeah. Could you do that more? Uh, <laughs> it was really. Yeah, and did you see him interviewed? Was it Lawrence O'Donnell? I yes. Think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, he was kind of a jack. And then, so it left <laughs> Lawrence O'Donnell to just start asking him stupid questions. Yeah. Anyway, so so um, so here's some more of the call. Let's get back into more of the call. He's, here is where he uh, he talks about a Democrat he could actually talk to. Why? Here we go. Now you're not talking to any of these Democrat bastards, are you? Uh, I, there's one guy that's actually voted with me in a bunch of things I called on Saturday for about 45 minutes. Uh, mainly to tell him that while I appreciated his friendship and he worked with us and other things, tell him why I wasn't going to budge. Mainly because yeah. he's about the only reasonable one over there. I figured if I talked to him, he'd go back to the rest of the gang and say, you know, I've known Walker for 20 years. He's not budging. Now, what's his name again? Uh, his name is Tim Cullen. All right. He, I'll have to give that man a call. Well, actually, in, in his case, I wouldn't call him, and I'll tell you why. He's pretty reasonable, but he's not a, he's not one of us. Oh, he's not one of us. You mean a billionaire? Oh, you're not as billionaire. What do you, you mean, somebody who wants to crush the worker? What does he mean, one of us? Somehow he's in the group, Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, that includes David Koch. Mm-hmm. Uh, not one of us. Depleted khaki militia? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he means a group that includes uh, billionaires and useful idiots. Oh, okay. Useful. I like that term, useful idiots. Okay. So here, here he is uh, talking about how he's going to uh, trick the Dems, Democrats, into coming back from Wisconsin, uh, Illinois and to get a, get a quorum. That's the whole thing. The reason why they fled the state is because they don't have a quorum. They can't vote on this bill, which is going to make – going to outlaw collective bargaining for state employees. Can I interject for sure. a moment? Just to play devil's advocate – is what they're doing any worse than the Democrats leaving so there won't be a vote? I agree that the that the bill before it is a is a terrible bill, but fleeing the state something about that doesn't seem very well. It's it feels no different than just threatening to filibuster anything and everything. Yeah, like, like it doesn't. The Republicans were yeah, doing. right. But it sounds does like that a make technicality. Right? Does that make it right because it's no worse than something yeah, else? No, I think it depends on what you're fighting for. And if what you let's put it this way, uh, does it make so you're saying Extremism? no matter what a tactic is wrong is what you're going to say? No, I'm, so, I'm just saying okay. uh, if we're going to be really even handed and truthful mm-hmm. about this whole thing, shouldn't mm-hmm. we discuss whether or not it's ethical to leave something to avoid a vote? Okay, I'll discuss that. I think it is. 
Okay. I think Good that this is the battleground <laughs> that the Republicans created. Yes. That they, you know, they f- will filibuster anything that moves. They will pull dirty tricks like this. Mm-hmm. This is the battleground, and it, you know, the Dems should be playing more like And this. so what the Democrats are doing right now is trying to drag out the debate. So what they're trying to do is ram through some huge legislation without the proper time for the public to get informed about it. And the reason why they want to do it so quickly is because they know if we drag this out, people will become informed about what's happening, mm. and they're going to turn against this. Okay. Because the unions so already why, made all the financial concessions. Yeah, so the, what the, they're doing now is saying they is Scott Walker wants them to forever give up the right to bargain. collectively bargain yeah. for their health yes. pensions. Yeah. So, That's got nothing to do with it. Which, with by the way, I'm not sure is deficit. constitutional. I'm not sure right. you can forbid that. So let, You can if they're not gay. Oh, <laughs> Let's put it this way, Paul. If uh, if the Democrats and Barack Obama tried to push the tried to ram the health care bill through, mm-hmm. like they like people accused them of doing, let's say they tried to do it in a, in the first month, mm-hmm. and then the Republicans walked out and they wouldn't let them, I would go, "Hey, I get that. This is a big piece of legislation. We need to have debate. People need okay. to have dem- we need right. to have some more I democracy." Sure, I just want to make sure it's not uh, for people all on the same page overlooking. They're uh, trying to. It's, they're really what they're really doing is they're trying to. Um, circumvent democracy really okay. is what they're doing uh it, and what the democrats are they're countering using, it with circumventing democracy yes i don't okay. think yes. that they well and so i don't what, know if that's true what I, mean, they're, that, that, I think what the democrats are doing is just trying to drag it out so that people get informed and the more people are informed already a usa poll they had a poll yesterday 61 percent of the people in the poll against what's happening in wisconsin mm-hmm. being meaning the governor mm-hmm. okay let, i have to get to the next clip i'm sorry Rob. An interesting idea that was brought up to me this morning by my chief of staff, if we won't do it till tomorrow, is putting out an appeal to the uh, the Democrat leader that I would be willing to sit down and talk to him, the Assembly Democrat leader, plus the other two Republican leaders. Talk, not negotiate. Okay, really? I'm Sounds not going to negotiate. Hey, hey, where do I sign? <laughs> You'll not- talk? Yeah, I'm. that's the kind of guy, that's the kind of leader. Would a game of Parcheesi be a deal breaker? <laughs> That, you know, the people of Wisconsin elected me not to work with the Democrats. Just to talk with them. Not to negotiate with them. To give the illusion of to compromise. Give, to give the illusion that we're working together. And listen to what they have to say. If Before ignoring they it. will, in turn, I will only do it if all 14 of them come back and sit down in the state assembly. They can, they can recess it to come back over and talk to me, but they'll have to go back there. The reason for that is... We're verifying it this afternoon, but legally we believe once they've gone into session, they don't physically have to be there. If they're actually in session for that day and they take a recess, the the 19 Senate Republicans could then go into action and they'd have a quorum because they started out that way. Um, So we're double-checking that, but that would be the only – if you heard that I was going to talk to them, that would be the only reason why. Yeah, if you heard that I was going to talk to the Democrats, the only reason I would ever talk to the Democrats is to try to trick them <laughs> into a legislative maneuver. It's not because I would actually want to work with them or because they represent people in my state, too, and we're going to try and get some legislation done. The only reason I would ever talk to a Democrat is because I'm trying to trick them. That's wow. what he's saying. Yeah. And he's admitting it. Yeah. Okay. Because he doesn't think that this phone call is going to be made. He public. does not think. Okay. So now, you know, a lot of people thought, and Hosni Mubarak planted some troublemakers in the crowd make it, to make it look like the crowd is uh, the violent people. And, uh, well, 
Mr. Koch brings that up to Scott Walker, actually, to do a tactic like that. What we were thinking about the crowds was, uh, was planting some troublemakers. You know, the... First of all, let me just break in there and say that guy could not sound phonier when he just said, uh, we're thinking of planting some troublemakers <laughs> down there. And there's Scott Walker. Well, here, and here's Scott Walker. Well, the only problem was, because we thought about that. Oh, they thought about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they thought about that. They thought about planting some troublemakers, some people to commit some violence in the crowds with the teachers. Where would you find those people in Wisconsin? <laughs> where did you with the bar the, on every corner? <laughs> I was thinking you get the same people they sent to Florida in 2000 to uh, uh, yeah. bully all the vote counters. Well, too. David Koch actually did send a, a, a couple of dozen or at least a dozen of buses uh, into Madison filled with people. Mm. Yeah, David Koch. So, you know, it's grassroots. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. The problem with uh, or my only uh, gut reaction to that would be uh, right now the – the and the lawmakers I've talked to have just completely had it with them. The public is not really fond of this. Uh, the teachers union did some polling and focus groups, I think, and found out that the public turned on them the minute they closed school down for a couple of days. You know, it's funny that even when he's talking to a supporter, Coke, right? Uh, he's lying. <laughs> right, because that's not true. The Those people have not right. turned on the, the. It's the exact opposite. It's like, does David Koch not read the USA Today? The guys we got left are largely from out of state, and I keep dismissing it in all my press comments, saying, "Yeah, they're mostly from out of state." My only fear would be is if there was a ruckus caused. Is that that? So here's the only reason why he wouldn't want to plant. <laughs> this is the only reason why he wouldn't want to plant violent troublemakers in with a group of peaceful protesters. Made up of mostly teachers. Wait, can I guess? Is it because he doesn't want to see people get hurt? Um, good guess. Let's see. That would scare the public into thinking maybe the governor's got to settle to avoid all these problems. Yeah, so the oh. only reason he wouldn't use troublemakers, violence against the teachers, is because it would make people think that he has to solve this problem. That's what he literally just said. If there was a lot of trouble and ruckus, people might want me to fix this. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to. That's what this is what he's saying. I love the fact that he uses the words troublemaker and ruckus like it's a Dennis the Menace episode, <laughs> you know, and not saying like agitators with axe handles, you know, like. People, yes, people try. We're trying to smear teachers. Right. And into making them out to be thugs. We're we're doing the exact thing we accuse the unions of doing. What if you invite some rascals into town yeah. <laughs> to perpetrate monkey shines? Yes. Oh, and yeah. then the hooligans will show up. Oh. Uh. And oh. we'll drive labor back another 70 years. <laughs> if, if you wrote a movie where the teachers were the enemy and the billionaire was the savior, people would say in a million years, nobody would ever fall for that. Yeah. <laughs> They're falling for it. You should go on Facebook with me. You should go on Facebook with me. Can I just say that this is like part of uh, one of the worst conspiracies I've ever heard in many ways, but in one way – you know who vilifies teachers? Totalitarians. Like, that is the first person they go after politically are the teachers. And that's why we have tenure in this country. It's so that teachers have the freedom to say what they want yes. when there's a different regime. And it is really an extra layer of troubling that they're going after teachers. It's, it's completely false that 
you know, these guys are rich, but it's like when they start targeting teachers, get uncomfortable. tonight with what was perhaps the most dramatic day yet in what has already been a tense drama-filled 11 days in the Midwest in the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin of course has been at the center of American politics ever since tens of thousands of that state's residents started protesting against their own Republican governor Scott Walker. Today day 11 of what had already been a tense standoff saw tensions ratchet up ratchet up even more dramatically. Protesters have spent the last week or so quite literally camping out in the state capitol building, sleeping there. But they awoke today to news and rumors that police were preparing to essentially clear the capitol. At around 9 this morning, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel started reporting what they called a pending police crackdown on capitol campouts. Quote, the police will begin cracking down on protesters today at 4 p.m. The Journal Sentinel described a flyer being distributed to state troopers, which ordered officers to end the sleep-in that was happening on the second, third, and fourth floors of the state capitol. Police were ordered to end that. Ordered by whom? Yesterday, the proposition that maybe the capitol should be cleared of protesters was floated by the Republican state senate leader. Today, after the clear the capitol rumors started spreading, the governor's office put out a statement saying that order was not coming from him. The governor's office blamed the cops. Quote, the instructions regarding access to the capitol were made by law enforcement officials to ensure the safety and public health of all individuals. Law enforcement officials. Law enforcement officials are the ones who want to clear the capitol, he says. Well, just about three short hours after that statement came out from the governor came this headline. State Capitol will remain open. Police group says it stands with protesters. By midday today, the Wisconsin Professional Police Association was essentially locking arms with these sleeping bagged protesters inside the state capitol. The head of that police union calling on Governor Walker to keep the Capitol open and allow the protesters to stay, adding, quote, we will be sleeping among them tonight. The police. Protesters are being allowed to stay inside the Capitol tonight. But starting tomorrow, authorities say sleeping bags will not be allowed inside. The Capitol will be completely closed for a short period of time on Sunday for a literal cleaning of the place. What happens after that in terms of protesters being allowed back in? Today's drama about clearing the capital of protesters followed a chaotic middle-of-the-night vote after midnight on the bill that has these protesters there in the first place. The bill being proposed by Governor Walker and state Republicans to effectively strip union rights in Wisconsin, to bust the public sector unions. At around 1 a.m. this morning, this is incredible, 
Republicans in the state assembly pulled off a surprise out of nowhere vote on that bill in the assembly chamber. Uh, after, after 61 hours of debate, they unexpectedly, at around 1 a.m., opened a vote on the bill and then closed the voting within seconds. In the utter confusion that ensued, nearly one-third of the entire body cast no vote on the bill at all because they had no idea what was going on. But in their middle of the night, seconds long, what just happened, closed down the vote, surprise attack, the bill passed. It passed that one chamber. Democrats erupted in anger afterwards. Watch this tape that we've got here. This is one in the morning after the Republicans pulled this lightning strike, seconds long vote. Look at the reaction. They're saying shame, shame, shame. This is, not, this is not day one. This is not the protests breaking out. This is not the confrontation that is starting something. This is day 11. This is day 11 of these protests that we're talking about the Capitol being cleared of protesters and this middle of the night shock vote. Why did everything hit the fan like this today? Best guess at this point is desperation. Consider how things have played out this week for Republicans in Wisconsin. On Wednesday, Republican Governor Scott Walker got prank called by someone he thought was billionaire oil baron David Koch. All on tape, the governor gave up his strategy. He neglected to mention this fiscal crisis he's supposedly so concerned about. He explained what tricks he was going to pull on the Democrats. He admitted to considering seeding troublemakers among the protesters, presumably as agent provocateur, all on tape. And that happens to make for really good anti-Scott Walker expose type ads like this one that just started running in the state today. Earlier this week, a blogger prank called Governor Scott Walker and pretended to be out-of-state oil billionaire David Koch. Hi, it's Scott Walker. Scott, David Koch, how are you? Hey, David, I'm good, and yourself? Why would Walker spend 20 minutes talking to an oil billionaire? Maybe because David Koch gave tens of thousands of dollars to Walker's campaign and millions more to outside groups that helped fund his election. That radio ad, that's a portion of the ad, it goes on from there. Uh, it is being run by a liberal group called Citizen Action of Wisconsin. In addition to that, there's also been the issue of public opinion turning against Governor Walker. In addition to the national poll that came out this week showing 61% opposition to what he's doing, now even a right-wing poll done by Fox News correspondent and pollster Dick Morris shows opposition to key parts of Governor Walker's plan. 54% of Wisconsin residents say they oppose the governor's position on changing collective bargaining rights in the state, and that is the Dick Morris poll. Also, the events of this week appear to be galvanizing support for unions in a way that unions couldn't quite ever pull off before, at least not in recent memory. For example, the faculty at some University of Wisconsin campuses are already unionized, uh, but other campuses are not. The University of Wisconsin at La Crosse had been one of those campuses where faculty was not unionized. The American Federation of Teachers had reportedly been trying for years to convince the La Crosse faculty that they should join the union. But you know what? 
Scott Walker sure has a way of convincing people now. The faculty at La Crosse voted on unionizing yesterday. They got 87% turnout and they decided that they would unionize by a vote of 249 to 37. It may have been hard to convince people to join a union before, but Governor Walker has made that decision a whole lot easier now. The National Republican Party threw its lot in with Scott Walker right from the start. The new Republican Party chairman is the party chair from Wisconsin. His great claim to Republican Party fame had been getting Scott Walker elected. And he essentially got to Washington and immediately threw the full weight of the RNC and the Republican Governors Association and the party writ large behind what Scott Walker was doing. Which is neat, Wisconsin pride and all that, but maybe he should have checked with the rest of the National Party before he did that. Because the rest of the party apparently didn't feel like leaping before they looked. As we mentioned earlier this week, the Republican Governors Association launched a shiny new website called StandWithScott.com. It is lovely. But as Politico.com pointed out today, quote, just four of the 29 Republican governors in, this, in the country wrote blurbs for that website. Four of them. Four real live human individual Republican governors. There are 29 of them and it is four who are willing to put their reputations behind this. The news is not much better for Governor Walker among national Republicans in his own state. When asked by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel whether he supports Mr. Walker's plans to curtail collective bargaining, Republican Congressman Paul Ryan of Wisconsin said, quote, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not a student of state budgets. Fellow Wisconsin Republican Congressman Sean Duffy says he believes Governor Walker is doing what he thinks is right, but on the bargaining issue, quote, I'm not going to engage in a state issue. Then there's Republican Congressman Reed Ribble of Wisconsin, who did criticize Democrats for leaving the state, but he said, quote, I don't have any problems with the protests going on. These are Wisconsin Republicans. The way you win a political fight the way you attract people to your cause is by succeeding. People like winners. People tend to join winners. National Republicans decided that Scott Walker was the guy they wanted to lead this fight. Deciding that was like putting your fighter in his first pro bout up against the world championship title holder. Welcome to the pros. Have you met Manny Pacquiao? Walker and the Republicans are not punching at some glass-jawed opponent here. They're punching at Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is winning. Republicans made the wrong move in picking this as the first fight in a fight they wanted to go national, which may be why things now are getting desperate for them. Hi, Jay. First of all, I love that message. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm calling from Albuquerque. And I just wanted to say on the podcast that you broadcast today, uh, I absolutely love your show, but I utterly disagree with your premise not to focus like the laser beam on a particular story like Wisconsin. I've loved all three episodes on Egypt. Yes, there was a lot of coverage in the media on Egypt as well as Wisconsin, but I listened to your show to get excuse me, to get the progressive angle on these stories. Young Turks charge for their podcast. I find the show to be rambling and kind of dull. My point being that I rely on your show to ferret through the liberal media to find the interesting takes on popular stories. 
uh, please continue in that vein and don't assume that we're as burned out on a particular topic as I'm sure you must be having to listen to as many sources as you do. Hi, this is Mary from St. Louis, Missouri. I just became a leftist member, and as much as I'd like to be a Satanist one day, right now leftist is all I can afford. Get that on a yearly subscription basis. And I'm calling because you asked on your March 3rd episode if we would like uh, more shows that are concentrated, more in-depth, the spiraling pit of depression type shows, or if we'd like more of the liven it up variety on a political theme. And I just have to say that uh, you should do both. As much as I think your concentrated shows are important, both historically and on an informational basis, we need the liven it up ones too. This is why I watch Conan at the end of the day instead of just reading the Middle East news for 24 hours. So that's my opinion. Um, Keep it up. I like both shows. And thanks so much for all you do, Kay. Hi, Jay. This is Susan from Altoona, Iowa. And I just finished your podcast on uh, religion. And I do prefer when you go from topic to topic rather than having two or three on the same topic in a row. I'm afraid I am one of those people who, uh, when I see that, it's like, I don't think I can take that. I'll wait for the next one. Love your show. I have donated, and I urge others to donate to keep it going. Thanks again. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Reverend Mike from Midland, Michigan calling about your poll, I'm actually going to do a change up on you and do a third option. I like a mix. Um, I like the in-depth ones, but I also like having them interspersed with some of the more general. Um, particularly enjoy your religious ones. So this might come as a surprise given my profession, but um, I like when uh, people call bad behavior for the bad behavior it is, and uh, boy does religion in America need that. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the separation of church and state as well, so I think you do a good service when you show some of those issues. Um, great show. I promote it on my blogs. I promote it in my church. I tell everybody about it, uh, and I hope you have continued success. Thank you. Hey, Jay. It's Dolly calling from Tallahassee, Florida, and I just wanted to let you know um, I love your podcast. They're awesome. I don't watch TV. I don't have TV, and even if I did, I wouldn't ever watch Fox. Um, and so when I hear what Fox is saying, when I listen to your show, my jaw just about hits the floor. I can't believe these people are saying the things that they said. Uh, I was listening to the Egypt podcast, and they were talking about the uh, Marxist communists connecting up with the Sharia Caliphate. And you, you couldn't get any more polar opposites than godless communists and ruled by religion. Seriously, how do they come up with this stuff? Um, and the scary thing is, is people are going to believe them. It, it's impossible to conceive that people would believe them, but they do. Um, and how do you have a conversation with somebody who, oh, I don't know, believes the world is flat or the moon is made out of green cheese? How do you, how do you even talk with these people? Um, anyway, love your show. Awesome show. Oh, and a uh, question. When you're talking about doing a feminist podcast, um, do you want feminist or uh, misogynist? conversation. Um, Let us know and we'll send you links. Thanks. Bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And obviously, we had a nice collection of calls that came in. Uh, There were even more than you heard because they just wouldn't all fit in the show. Uh, But the consensus seems pretty clear. And frankly, you know, as I asked the question on on the last show, you know, I kind of, in uh, in my gut, I knew the answer before I asked, but, but I'm, I'm certainly glad to get uh, actual feedback from you guys. And so the answer is to run the show the way I would want it to be run. If I were a listener, which sometimes I can lose a little bit of sight of, um, which was the reason why I was able to do, uh, you know, like three episodes on Egypt all in a row and not think that that was a terrible idea, uh, because I didn't, put myself in your shoes enough. So, uh, you know, the idea being, of course, it's really important. Uh, I do think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the big shows like that all focused on one very narrow, uh, issue is, uh, you know, I think that they're good. I think they're useful. I think that sometimes a story is so big, it requires, uh, or deserves, uh, you know, a two or maybe even a three part show. But, um, you know, what, what I like about the show, I think what a lot of you like about the show is the nice mix, you you know, not only a mix of commentators, but a mix of stories. It keeps it fresh. It keeps it moving and so on. You know, you guys know all this. So, um, so the idea would be then to do both as people mentioned, you know, but just don't, don't get them all crowded together, which is why I did that religion episode. And now here we are, you know, I got to do another episode on Wisconsin. It's a giant story. We're not nearly uh, done with it yet. And, um, you know, so there will be more to come, but I'm not going to put them back to back to back because uh, that's not the way I'd want to listen to it. So why would you want to listen to it that way? So I think that's a perfectly, perfectly well-reasoned, uh, you know, compromise between people who weren't disagreeing in the first place. That's really about all I have for you guys today. I didn't have any comments on anything else, so I just want to thank uh, my awesome, awesome volunteers who continue to kick ass. Uh, Mike, Colette, Joe, Todd, Lauren, and Emerson uh, are, are really doing a great job. And members need to be thanked, of course. Liam M. signed up for his monthly uh, leftist membership back on September 12th. And Troy M. signed up for a uh, socialist membership back on uh, November 27th and went ahead and paid for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Liam and Troy and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. Of course, everybody can support the show in their own way, especially ways that don't cost any money whatsoever. Uh, You can donate your Twitter account to us so that I can actually send messages through your Twitter account to your followers. It helps spread the word enormously. Uh, About 110 people have signed up so far, and that translates to 50,000 followers that I can actually reach through you guys. So, uh, you know, obviously it's a huge, huge help. Thanks so much to everyone who signed up. Uh, please, you know, please continue to sign up and become part of, uh, this really massive, uh, powerful way to, uh, you know, help spread the word about the show, progressive politics in general, and so on. Of course, you can also follow and like the show as well as spreading the word about it by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details about the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye-bye. Black and white, so
look upon a picture that wasn't right. Bitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the floor. Who'll take you out. 